Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around inspiration and impact in the world. I'm your host, Florence Adu. I am in a hot and humid Accra. I was over here thinking that the raining season was starting, but I'm foiled. It hasn't started, but we can't complain. My guest today is coming to me from a springtime place. I'm so happy to host her. She is a writer and editor of original literature for young people and adults. Her debut album, Powder Necklace, is based on her experience attending secondary school here in Ghana, and it ushered her into the it crowd of African writers as one of 39 of Sub-Saharan Africa's most promising writers under the age of 40. She has written for Parenting Magazine, The Village Voice, Ebony.com and Ebony Magazine, and even Ethiopian Airlines' Selamata Magazine, to name a few. She is a featured author in Akashic Books' recent Aquar Noir anthology. She is also a designer of clothing for the Made in Ghana lifestyle line, Exit 14, Nana Akua Brew Hammond. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Florence. I'm so excited to be here. I just want one thing I wanted to say is you said I was the writer of the debut album and I claim it if I'm supposed to be a songwriter. But oh, did I, I say just, debut album? Yeah, but I just wanted to say it was a novel. <laughs> For debut novel. Okay. <laughs> My bad. Um, but yeah, she is a writer. And Pattern Necklace was such a lovely story. I really, really enjoyed it. So let's just jump right into the conversation, Nana. Tell us more about where you're from, where you're local, and what is your craft, in your words? So I am from Ghana and New York. <laughs> um, I, I, whenever someone asks me that, I, I'm always like, okay, what do I, how do I answer this question? I am from Ghana um, by way of my parents. And I went to school in Ghana from 13 to 15. And that was a huge part of my life. I go to Ghana as often as I get the chance to and I have so much family there. So I really consider myself rooted in Ghana, but I was also born in the US, grew up in Queens, New York and live in Queens right now. So, and have lived in Queens for most of my life. So I also consider myself very much a New Yorker, very much a Queens girl. So yeah, that's where I'm from, where I, and I answered where I was local and mm -hmm. uh, what my craft is. So. I am a writer. I um, my focus is writing um, fiction, um, but I also have in the past written articles, and I did that for quite some time. And now I also, um, in addition, I've always been interested in fashion, and mm -hmm. just from a young age, being in Ghana, you know, a lot of our clothes are made by tailors and, and seamstresses. And so there's a connection to the things that you wear that's kind of different from when you just, you know, go to a store and buy it. And so from youth, I was always like fascinated by like, oh, I can pick the fabric, I can choose the style. And as I've gotten older, I just started designing pieces for myself mostly. And then in 2017, my sister, my mother, and I to start, decided to um, start the clothing line, um, the lifestyle line, Exit 14, 
anchored by making um, coats um, for anyone who just loves our incredible textiles. We focus on the um, textile that is native to the northernmost regions of Ghana, um, Batakari. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the ability to translate that, that awesome fabric to the context of, you know, cooler climate. So that's why we, um, that's what Exit 14 is about. What does Exit 14 mean? So, um, Exit 14 is, um, is based on a personal story. Um, my sister mm-hmm. and I were driving our, um, younger brother to college and we had to pick up some supplies for him. Um, and it's, he went to college in upstate New York and mm-hmm. they directed us to a, a store to pick up supplies for him for school. And it was off exit 14. I don't even remember now. It was probably okay. the name of the state throughway. Okay. And as we were driving, we got to like exit 12. Okay. Exit 13 came along and then it took forever. We were driving for what felt like over an hour. Um, and we were convinced that we had lost our way. So we ended up turning back after driving for like a long time um, from exit 13. And we asked um, for directions from a local. And when we described where we had been, she was like, you were like basically almost there. And so for our, my sister and I, <laughs> our shorthand, like just stay the course, you're almost there. We'd be like exit 14, exit 14. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, for us, it felt like the perfect name for our brand because one, we like, we travel so much where like, you know, we're Ghanaians, but we're in this different context and we're always sort of all over the place. And it's easy to feel like, you know, maybe, you know, you're not where you're supposed to be in that moment, but it's sort of like that reminder to just stay the course. You're on the path. You're headed to the right place. Nice. Nice. I love that story. That's so cute. That's great. And I know family is, is really um, big for you. And I, I know, I know your family, of course. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> like them all, hey. <laughs> So tell us a little bit more. I, w- I want to go a little bit deeper into the, the fashion right now, and then we'll talk a little bit more about riding later. So Batakari, so your family, tell us more about where your family is from in Ghana. So we get a little bit of an understanding of how Northern Ghana plays into it and, and maybe why you gravitated towards that, or just, just a general idea of your Ghana. Okay, so we are not from the north. My mother is Ewe and my father is Fanti and Ga. So my sort of introduction to Ghanaian textiles was, you know, kente and cloth mm-hmm. um, in Ewe Edo, um, mm-hmm. intuma, you know, cloth mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. cotton, the cotton um, printed textiles. So um, in probably... Um, my dad, you know, had like a few Batakari smocks. And I remember like probably in the early 2000s when I really sort of started getting more interested in Ghanaian fashion, I remember like stealing my dad's Batakari smock and wearing it as a dress. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this is the cutest mini dress. Mm-hmm. And I remember like it became my thing and my mom would be like, you know, we don't do that. You don't wear it that way. And I'd be like, I don't care. I'm wearing it this way. And so I just fell in love with um, like the way it was, it was made, the way it was woven. Um, I'm a person that really loves craftsmanship and detail. And I really mm-hmm. loved the um, embroidered design of the neckline, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, that was like my first taste of batakari. And then anytime I would go to Ghana after that, I would just, I would be like, stop the car. Whenever I saw any batakari on the roadside, I would buy some. Mm-hmm. And I collected a lot of batakaris. And then probably when John Mahama was president, they had started an organization called SADA. And I don't remember what it stands for, but the um, focus of SADA was to really kind of support the economic growth of the Sahara region in Ghana. And so one of the things that came out of that was they started selling batakari, not as not made, but as cloth, right? Like as pieces that Mm -hmm. you could. Um, Mm -hmm. that was available to the public in a way that it hadn't been before. Mm. And just giving more visibility to like this amazing tradition of weavers and textile artists. Mm -hmm. And so we traveled to the North. We did like an amazing two week trip where we drove from Accra to the then upper East region, upper West region and the Northern region um, and drove throughout it. And and on part of that trip, we met this amazing Batakari artist, weaver, designer. And so that was like, you know, the kind of the next leg of that journey of like, you know, our interest. And so we started just buying Batakari. And what I loved about it is because it's heavier, you know, we could wear it in colder months in the States. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we decided to make coats for ourselves and, um, I will never forget this day. My sister and I went out, we were each wearing a coat, a Batakari coat. And my mom was in London and she had, was wearing, you know, her coat. And that day, like, I'm telling you every two steps, people stopped us. Like, what's going on? Where did you get this coat? This is so amazing. This is so amazing. And so we, we have a group WhatsApp and we just like, messaged each other like did did people stop you too and my mom was like oh my goodness like I couldn't take two steps and so we were like maybe we should just see if people would be interested in this so we did like we put them up for sale like we just decided to do that and the interest was so like great that we decided to do a couple more styles and we started pitching it around and Vogue covered us And then, you know, everybody knew about us and we were like, oh my goodness, this is so amazing. And so that's how this all kind of came to be. Nice, nice, nice. Like debut line gets covered by Vogue. I know, it's God. Thank you, Lord. I mean, (laughs) truly. So that was, so you launched in 2018 or? We launched in, okay, maybe I'm getting the timeline wrong. I think it was 2017 or maybe it was was 2018. 2018. I, I, I think it was 2017. Okay. So you launched then. So you're like five years in. So how is the fashion world? I mean, we're now post COVID. So I know a lot of fashion brands have been like hard hit by, by the, that phenomenon, um, particularly for those people who dress, right? So it yeah. seems like the dress and leggings <laughs> and yoga wear is all the rage, but yes. for, for high fashion, it's been a bit of a different space. So how has it been the last couple of years? I mean, I think that it definitely has been a growth, a time of like growing in terms of like what our business is about and, mm-hmm. you know, what we're focused on. But mm-hmm. I think like just with respect to COVID, I think that initially none of us really knew what was happening. I think the whole world was sort of like blindsided by COVID, right? Like yeah. one minute, everything was fine. And then the next weekend we were in like 
an indefinite lockdown quarantine. And we didn't know how long it would last. At some point, you know, at one point we thought, oh, by, by summer of 2020, it'll be over. Mm-hmm. And then that obviously wasn't the case. So I think that we were, our focus wasn't on like trying to like sell. Our focus mm-hmm. was on just trying to stay safe, mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, and then it was also all the borders were closed. So mm-hmm. our, our focus wasn't really on that. And one thing about us, uh, you know, you you talked about like, fa- like, what is the fashion world? And I think that like, as somebody who used to write for a magazine that covered lots of like fashion brands and someone who worked for a retail company for several years, I think, yes, we are um, definitely a fashion statement and a fashion brand. But I think that beyond that, we are really focused on providing a service to our customers. So we're not really, I don't think of myself, like I'm not, I don't think we're focused. I think we're, Mm. I don't know how to say this, but like, I think that it's not just about like sort of being part of a fashion vertical, but really about a lifestyle. We're not trying Mm. to, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm produce something that like, you know, comes out like, you know, spring 2018, fall 2019. Like it's not about like hitting the seasonal calendar. It's about Mm -hmm. acquiring pieces that you will, Mm -hmm. that you will have forever one. And that, and also that are sustainably made that are, Mm -hmm. um, reflective of a generation's old culture and tradition and artistry there's so many levels to it. So as, so as far as, as far as we're concerned, we're a brand that like is evergreen, like it never, nothing ever stopped. Like you can always buy our pieces and they're here for, you know, they're here basically. So, so that's how we, we've been thinking about this whole pandemic and just grateful that like, Mm -hmm. you know, in New York anyway, things seem to be kind of taking a turn for the better Mm -hmm. And we're coming out and they're slowly, you know, they're saying in June, they're going to be reopening yeah. things. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yes. And just, we're grateful that Ghana has, you know, not been hard hit. So grateful, so grateful for that. So just kind of, you know, keeping what's important, important. So, yeah. Okay. Yep. Makes sense. I hear you all the way. So let me ask you this. So I typically ask this question, why the where? And you've kind of hit on that. But as someone who's a traveler, as you mentioned, and is a global person, let me ask you that. Why the where? Like, how did you come to be living and working and playing where you live? So maybe how did you choose New York and how did you choose or versus somewhere else? Well, um, like I said, I was born in the US and raised in New York for most of my life with the exception of the 3 years that I went to school in Ghana. Um so I feel like I chose to stay here because it felt like and it feels like a place where I can be more mobile, if you will. I feel like in New York I am not only exposed to so many different cultures and contexts but it is also easy to travel to other mm-hmm. places um, from New York. That's true. Um, so I think that for, for right now, it makes sense. And because I am a writer as well, um, I love the fact that like publishing companies are in New York. Right. Um, you know, right. there's a, a lot of, this is like um, a center 
for a lot of the things that I do mm-hmm. and that I'm, I'm focused on. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So you just mentioned publishing. So you come from a Ghanaian family and usually, and I say this, to, we have this conversation often on the podcast, like, oh, my parents, you know, uh, or the typical parents are like, oh, doctor, lawyer, engineer, something of that nature. So tell us, how did writing become a part of you? So since I was a kid, I have always been writing. I was like that child that would, when we would go to like family functions at an auntie's house, I would be in the bedroom where all the coats were piled on the bed writing. I would just like bring my little notebook with me and be writing. I was always writing as a kid. So that's kind of like where it began, but like how I got into it professionally was sort of like a winding road. My parents did sort of feel that I should pursue a profession that would, you know, have a guaranteed income. So Mm -hmm. I ended up sort of choosing advertising because I knew that that was a place where I could write. And I was a copywriter. um, You know, I was a staff copywriter for many years before I like transitioned to freelance copywriting. Mm -hmm. And I became how the, the, my first novel came about was basically um, just, I had always, I didn't, I couldn't give up like writing. And this story of my experience attending secondary school in Ghana was just something that I always knew, even from when I was li- was at Infantiman Girls Secondary School, that I was like, I got to write about this. This is like the wildest and most seminal experience that I'm having. So anyway, so I knew that that was something that I just started writing on my way to and from work on the subway uh-huh. in New York. Uh-huh. And so that's what I did. And I, you know, pitched it for many years to agents, finally got an agent okay. and she sold it. And that's how, it, you know, the book came to be. Okay. So tell us more about the pitching and finding an agent, because that's critical in the career of a, a writer to be a published writer, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. So tell yeah. us more about that, how that Yeah. Well, I want to say, first of all, that like, you know, everyone's path is circuitous and Mm -hmm. yes, the um, indifferent. So like, Mm -hmm. if you don't have an agent, it is possible to sell a novel. Some people Mm -hmm. self-publish, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. I just want to say that off the bat. But for me, the pitch process was every agent has a different way that they prefer to be pitched. Mm -hmm. So I just did a lot of research, just looking up like, okay, some people want the first 50 pages. Some people want the first hundred pages. Some people Mm -hmm. want the first two chapters, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And just really kind of going down the line and like sending it to all these different people. It took me at that time, four years to find an agent. I got Mm -hmm. rounds and rounds and rounds and rounds of rejection. It was Mm -hmm. really tough, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I've compared it to like finding a spouse. Like I feel like... (laughs) There's so much like searching, but then when you are connected with the person who gets your work, it clicks and, you know, and you need that because that's the person who's out front for you selling your work. And Mm -hmm. so they need to be super passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And so um, my agent at the time was this young woman who was, you know, we just clicked. Um, and she was really passionate about what I was doing and she was able to sell the book within like three months. Oh, wow. Um, once of signing. So Mm -hmm. that was so, so exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, after four years of rejection to get that, like, Oh snap, it's sold, you know? Right, 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 right. That's really interesting. So not to give away much of the story. I love that story because I didn't go to school 
in Ghana. And I'd read it well before moving to Ghana. And so I felt like I had a window into, and I came here to work with young people. And so I had this different window into like, wow, secondary school is no joke. You know, when you, especially coming for the culture shock that it could be coming and living and making life. So just to kind of get a, a sense of flavor and to segue into my local speak question, tell us uh, one of the stories that impacted you the most significantly in your experience at secondary school. And dovetail that with what you might find is, um, glo- and I want to ask you, global speak in Ghana. So that's a word okay. or favorite thing that makes real impact for you. Okay. Um, so in terms of experience, when I was in secondary school, my school had a major water crisis. Mm. And that was something that was so wild to me because, you know, coming from the U.S., like not having water was something that never entered like my <laughs> my thinking at all. I mean, right. it, it seemed impossible to think that, oh, like you turn on the tap, water comes <laughs> out of it. <laughs> And so to be faced with that, mm-hmm. like, wow, there's no water coming out of the tap. What do we drink? How do we bathe? And being in that context, you're already away from your family. And I was not only away from my like family in Ghana, but I was away from my parents who were in the state. So it was, I think that was a real wake up call to mm-hmm. like, one, the world is not just what you experienced in this one context in the U.S., mm-hmm. And that was very eye-opening to me. And just sort of, how do you take care of yourself? Because you're you're already in boarding school, you already have to take care of yourself. But how do you take care? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was that was probably one of the most profound experiences that I had while I was there. Mm-hmm. And in terms of local speak, Wait, so um, can I ask how long? Did oh, yeah, the, sure. How long did the, the crisis last? Was it ongoing? It, it, it was ongoing. Mm-hmm. And um, they actually, a couple of years after I um, graduated, they finally got like this huge tanker mm. um, that like was brought onto the campus. And now it's so funny because whenever I, I go to Ghana, you know, at least once a year, mm-hmm. um, I have been going for the last several years, last two decades. Mm-hmm. And you know, I go to the school almost every year to visit. Mm-hmm. And when I see like, they have like, it, they are so watered up. Like they do not play. Like each house has like a huge, like monster gallon. Like, I don't know what those like hundred gallon tanks, like for each house. Plus yeah. the, there's like, I don't even know, like a tank, a truck size tanker filled with water at different points on the campus as well. So they have definitely addressed the problem. Thank God, because it was horrid (laughs) while we were there. I mean, I can say that I have been confronted lately. We've been having Mm -hmm. water problems. Mm -hmm. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think generally the globe, I don't know if we've come to understand how important water is. And we, that whole idea of taking it for granted, you know, being in, you know, the, the Northern countries that have it and it's there. But it really, it's like feeling naked almost. Like you just feel like, oh, I just feel at a loss. Like I woke up this morning and my tap was not working. Fortunately, I have backup. But then when you don't have backup, when that runs out, then you're just like, wow. So we had a week week where the whole of Eastern Accra was waterless. So if you can imagine, it was just. Yeah, you could imagine, but I can't imagine. I can relate to that story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So I interrupted you. You were continuing. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I think that was a big thing for me as a kid, because I think as a child, you already take so much for granted. Mm -hmm. Things are just, if you're blessed to have like a family, like that's taking care of you or, or a guardian taking care of you, like you don't think about like how they're taking care of you and where's the money coming from. Mm -hmm. You're just living. Mm -hmm. And so to be thrust into that context where like, you couldn't take water for granted, which seemed so elemental, so fundamental to life. Mm-hmm. That was huge. And it was a wake up call. And I think that though I, I'm not of the school, like you have to go through these awful, terrible things to teach you something. I will say that it really gave me a profound lesson at a young age about like the importance of like that you can make it through like mm. the most crazy mm-hmm. situations. You can make it through. Mm-hmm. And you can like get, and you can make it stronger. Mm -hmm. You you know, you can make it out stronger than you were before you came. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I was going to say Glocal speak, Mm -hmm. um, since you had added that question in, I would say my sort of favorite expression is, hey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, we love it. Yeah, I feel like that is, whenever I hear an hey, like I know I am in, the company of an African, a Ghanaian, mm-hmm. like, and A means so many different things, like, depending on the context. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, look at you, like, you know, mm-hmm. or like, there's just so many, I, I couldn't even um, begin to, yeah. to, dis- to decipher all of the, the meanings it has. Sure. But um, that's like one of my favorites. Yes. One of those wordless expressions. Yes. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. love it, A. yeah (laughs) okay all right so you one of your most recent endeavors is this Accra Noir which is an anthology that was put together by Akashic Books I believe and so tell us about how you so you went from writing your first novel and continue writing of course but how then have you emerged and immersed yourself into the the cadre of young African writers and and, um, mm-hmm. and authors? Well, so um, Akashic Books has mm-hmm. a series called, um, has a noir series. Right. They have done like Lagos Noir, Brooklyn mm-hmm. Noir, mm-hmm. Adisababa Noir, etc. And mm-hmm. so Accra Noir came out in December of 2020 to add to that um, body of work. Mm-hmm. The editor of that project is called Nanama Dankwa. She is an amazing writer also Ghanaian. Mm -hmm. And, um, she's actually such an amazing, um, just mentor to me when my first, um, when powder necklace, um, was released in 2010, like she just found me on Twitter, reached out to me and just kind of encouraged me and has been an encouragement to me on this process. So I was so, um, you know, I really admire her and respect her and, you know, when she invited me to submit um, a story to Accra Noir, I was delighted. I have never written noir before. Mm-hmm. So it was an exciting opportunity to just stretch myself and try something new. And, you know, when it's funny, you, you, ta- you asked me that question in that way of like sort of young African writers, because when um, in 2013, I submitted um, to be part of the Africa 39 anthology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the ways that they described us are like, we're the most promising, you know, African writers under, you know, 39 and under. 
and they said that you know we have the potential to shape the literary trends coming out of of that region and i've thought about that a lot and um you know as sort of we've gotten older i mean 2013 was you know almost a decade ago i've been thinking to myself like wow like this is that that's such a big mantle to place on like 39 <laughs> writer you know like this group of writers like you have the potential to shape the literary trends coming out of this region and i thought like on some level it's really cocky and sort of culturally chauvinistic to say that i and i say that because it's sort of like you know not because we were not good writers but it just feels like this anointment right of mm-hmm. from this group uh, on us but um in thinking about it more and thinking about it more deeply i think it's actually an amazing opportunity and responsibility that we're not just called to you know to write our stories but it's also this wonderful opportunity for us to also be part of creating a community and like helping support other people um to to also you know get published and to get that encouragement like just as i was telling you like how Nanama Dankwa reached out to me and many other people reached mm. out to me when my book first came out and they like gave me you know they took the time to give me advice and just put me on to like what it was to be like an author and i feel like that's what that's really what that Africa 39 sort of anointment was was like mm-hmm. as something like Michelle Obama says it's like you're in now and don't close the door behind you like keep it open for um the people that are are also on the way up or and and also extend yourselves to each other like just build community basically so in being part of that group and finding that community how has that potentially influenced your work oh my goodness it's influenced me so much um first of all it was my first exposure to writers who don't write in english you know cuz that group was you know we had a writer from equatorial guinea mm-hmm. we had a writer from cote d'ivoire we had a writer from congo and so just kind of being exp- i mean you know this like you know of course there are writers and books happening mm-hmm. in all over the world but you know just to be exposed to african writing that was happening you know outside of an mm-hmm. anglophone context was just really wonderful and i think that that was one of the best parts of that experience of just kind of meeting writers mm-hmm. and meeting writers in other countries i think that when you when you come from like especially mm-hmm. sort of in my experience like as an immigrant child um my initial understanding of like africa mm-hmm. back home was only through the lens of ghana and it was only when i started traveling to other african countries that i was like oh it's different like and it seems so obvious but like there's this tendency to like you know paint africa with this like you know broad brush like it's all one way but when you start to visit other cultures and meet people from other countries mm-hmm. and contexts then you start to see like oh my goodness like this is such a mm-hmm. and again it's so obvious but it just bears repeating that like we are not a monolith and so i think that like just I, we need to kind of just keep bringing like driving that home you know just driving that home if you're a reader who is only you know you mm-hmm. like african mm-hmm. um literature but you're only reading like 
works from one country or works that is mm-hmm. in, that um you know from anglophone countries west africa for example i would really encourage i try to encourage myself as well to just read outside of that you know mm-hmm. read writers from you know north africa read writers from southern africa read writers from lusophone africa etc so that is something that i i really feel um passionate about Right. So, you know, we in the West or the global North, we have kind of set industries that consume literature in a way that it seems to be a bit different than in the the global South and in Africa and, you know, other countries where we just don't necessarily have the resources for publishing or the platforms available to us. So within that community and in your understanding of what the writer's experience is in Africa or somewhere else, how would you describe the the business challenges that you've heard authors experience and and even just through the Akashic Books experience? Because it's a Ghana-based publishing house, but the audience, I think, necessarily has to be global and definitely more diaspora because of the nature of, first of all, our education systems and all those things that really lead to the culture of consuming literature from, from, from a commercial perspective. So I guess just to boil it down is how do you see authors based in Africa making a living as writers? Well, first of all, I want to clarify something. Um, mm-hmm. Akashic Books is actually based in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. And what, yeah, it's based in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, it's founded by a gentleman called Johnny Temple. And oh, okay. if you go on their website, their goal is decolonizing literature. Um, so mm-hmm. they're really focused on that. And they are actually, they have partnered with Cassava Republic, which is, oh, um, Nigeria. yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's based in Nigeria and the UK. Mm-hmm. And um, they are handling the release and launch of Accra Noir in Accra, in Ghana, okay. Okay. Um, Lagos and other parts of Nigeria and um, the UK and other parts of that community. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's actually this understanding that's actually not fact-based or not, not true that like, how do you call it? Like there isn't a readership, you know, on the continent for, you know, for us. I just think that, you know, frankly, a lot of the, the publishing company, the Western publishing industry maybe just hasn't, don't have the relationships or the context and the knowledge yet of like how to really, how to market books um, mm. in, in our, in our part of the world and mm. parts of the world. Cause I think about like how many, when you're driving in Accra, like how many of those, like, of like people who are selling books on the mm-hmm. roadside mm-hmm. and people stop and buy those books. And yeah. there are bookstores like across, you know, Accra and, mm-hmm. um, so I think that it's just a matter of understanding the market and understanding how to market to the different segments. Mm-hmm. And I think that now that like, you know, where we are in a globalized and globalized world, there is more appetite for international publishers to really understand the market and partner with people who know the market mm-hmm. um, so that like, you know, we can really get books into the hands of readers. Mm-hmm. So on the continent. So I would just say that. I think that as a writer, one thing that I can say is that like, uh, I remember this so well, I, I did an event in Accra on the day of like the World Cup finale. Like the game was happening. I thought no one was going to be there. And the place was packed. I mean, 
packed Mm -hmm. shoulder to shoulder. And I was just like, wow. Like, and I, and they were saying like, yeah, the finale is going, otherwise you'd have more people here. And that happens like all the time. Mm -hmm. Like every event that I've done, there has been like such a strong showing because people are one, they're proud of you. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're also like, there's such an appetite, like to come together around literature. So I almost feel like it's more enthusiastic in a way than like in a city like New York, where, you know, we have so many of these events at our disposal that in some ways we can take it for granted. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like, I, I think that there's just like this, like real appetite for like, connection around literature and stuff. So I think that as a writer, like you wouldn't be at a loss for finding people who are interested in your work Mm -hmm. um, and interested in supporting you. Mm -hmm. I do think that it's just an, it's an interesting challenge. Like if you're, you're on your own, like you, you know, you go from bookstore to bookstore, but I know writers who have done it. And I've, when I go to Accra, there are times when I've like, I'll bring my you know, few copies to a bookstore and ask them to hold it and sell it. And if they sell it, they send me the money, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, and there's some great bookstores. There's, um, there's a bookstore, um, that's an online and they will deliver the books to you. It's called book nook. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. it's started that. by mm-hmm. Nana Ared Damwa and mm-hmm. uh, Nana Ared Damwa has been, he and his publishing partner, Kofi Akpabli have been just real, um, leaders in this space of just kind of providing, I believe they have a publishing company as well. I think it's called Doc Pabli, um, mm-hmm. where they just really have been providing um, ways for writers to sell their work on the continent. Mm-hmm. There's also the Writers Project of Ghana, mm-hmm. um, which is so amazing. They have for years done a weekly radio show on City FM. Mm-hmm. They do workshops, they do retreats. They now produce um, the Peja Literary Festival. Um, in Accra annually. I think this last one was the third year that they've been doing it. And, you know, so there is, and these kinds of organizations are all over the continent. So there are real, there are real ways for writers to, I think the main thing is, is what we were talking about earlier, is just connecting with people Mm -hmm. and being in community, Mm -hmm. because I know that like they have been support, so supportive of me throughout this journey of, you know, being an author, like just, you know, throwing a launch for me, bringing people together, you know, so that we could discuss my work or, you know, inviting me to speak at different panels and things like that. And Mm -hmm. just encouraging me Mm -hmm. along the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, you know, if you're a writer and, you know, you want to get your work out there and sell it, it's all about just sort of identifying like those organizations, finding that community and being part of it and supporting it. Right. So ultimately it's not so big business in our part of the world. It may be well, I, there, I, but it's good. I, what I will say, I don't want to say that because I know that there are publishers on the continent and they are making money. So I can only speak from my experience. Mm. I do think that um, there's definitely a business like people, they're printers who are printing these books Mm -hmm. and selling them. Mm -hmm. So they are making money. And I think that they would be in a better position to explain, you know, what the actual financials are and like how big the business is and the growth potential and all of that. But I would just say as a writer, Mm -hmm. if you are just starting out, I would say that the main thing is get connected with those organizations that support writers and identifying the individuals who are like leading the way. Sure. Because I think that like, 
that's the beginning. And then also just reaching out to bookstores because there are bookstores. Mm-hmm. As long as there's a bookstore there, like talk to someone about like selling your book there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to add that there's this really great organization in Accra and I'm going to butcher what it stands for, mm-hmm. but L-O-A-T-A-D. And it's like a library mm-hmm. um, that has just been founded. And there are other libraries in Accra mm-hmm. and they are also... This LOAD in particular is really um, passionate about like stocking African writers from all over the continent. And I think that initiatives like that are also really important because I think that it's important to have our books like available to in our context on the continent. Okay. So that stands for the Library of Africa and the African Diaspora. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes, 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 yes. So no, that's a great lead. And I think the library movement is also burgeoning. And I, I say all of a little bit of what I'm seeing on this, the context of consumerism is because, you know, I'm here working in the media space and particularly looking at children's books. So I think from the adult perspective there, that definitely fits into the, you know, there's places to go and things to see, but I just find that the consumer level for children's content, the appetite is somewhat there and it's driven by schools, but the masses haven't adopted it or adapted it. And part of it is probably a little bit on the what's out there level and just kind mm-hmm. of getting parents to connect, maybe not in words because they don't always have the words, but in some other way. So yeah, I, I feel you in that in that sense. And I think that's the key some other way, mm-hmm. because I think that especially when, you know, for those of us who, who um, also have like come from a Western context, mm-hmm. it feels like it's established and this is the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. But I think what is so wonderful about Ghana and our other markets is that like, there's so much opportunity to create what it is that is right for that specific context. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, it's all about like what I've seen in Ghana that I admire so much is just like the creativity of the hustle. Like, you know, like when you start talking to people who are, you know, entrepreneurs, like they battle odds creatively and they come up with ideas that like are so out of the box because it's a different context. And I think that we should embrace the fact that like, it may not even be about going to a bookstore and that may not be the right context right. Um, for a specific, you know, communities, you know, in Ghana, for example, for children's books. Exactly. Um, it might be just a whole other thing. So mm-hmm. I just think that that's where we as creatives and people who are um, tasked to innovate and called to innovate and, you know, inspire to innovate. Um, that's where we can really kind of flourish, right? And like come up with something that is just so unexpected, so fresh and so tailored to the market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what you've just said makes me think of my mindset hack. So what would you say is is your favorite mindset hack? Um, my favorite mindset hack is don't talk yourself out of it. Mm, mm-hmm. We can look at a circumstance and feel that it's impossible and start telling ourselves that. And then we talk ourselves out of the thing that we want to do, the vision that we have for something. And I think that, you know, yeah, like when we're talking about 
like oftentimes in Ghana, like I hear people say, and, and I've often said like, oh my goodness, this is so frustrating. This is never going to get better. Or like, oh, this government, this, or, you know, some sort of complaint that makes it seem like, you know, there's no way out of a, a specific situation. And I think that we don't understand how powerful our words are to even just sort of shape our own vision of what we think can happen. Because mm. once we start telling ourselves mm -hmm. like, oh my God, it's never going to get better. It's nothing's ever going to change. We start to believe that. And yeah. once we believe that, we basically um, maintain the status quo. Mm. And most of us don't want to maintain the status quo. We want things to get better and we want to change things. So I just, I'm learning, don't talk myself out of it. You know, stay the course focus on what you can do and also speak big things like dream mm. big and mm -hmm. like, don't be afraid of that. Like mm -hmm. walk towards the thing that seems impossible because mm -hmm. the thing that is possible now was impossible at some point before. Right. You know? Right. 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 That's lovely. I like that sentiment. So when you're not writing, when you're not designing, what kind of things are you watching or listening to? Um, I'm watching documentaries. I've really been into documentaries and I have really been just listening to worship music lately, like mm. talking about like sort of don't talk yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm realizing more and more, you know, why the old church ladies were always like, they seemed crazy. Like, like all they listen to is like worship music. All they do is read like, you know, those books, but now I'm understanding like, to get your mind right, sometimes you need to just really immerse yourself in things that build you up and mm -hmm. edify you. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've been on, um, on the music tip mm -hmm. and yeah. Mm -hmm. And documentaries, just like learning. I love like learning history yeah. and what's happening in our world. Okay. Um, what's one, what's one that you would recommend for our listeners? Uh, documentary. I'm in the middle of watching something called um, Closure. And it was just an interesting documentary about a Black woman who was adopted by a white family, and she grew up in Washington State in the U.S., which is very, very white. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she basically had a longing to connect with her birth family, and it's just a really powerful story of how she found first her birth father mm. and, then, and then her birth mother. Mm. And it's just really emotional you know, story. So I appreciated that. And where, what platform is that on? It is on Amazon Prime. Okay. So we'll have that in the show notes, folks. So you can also check out Closure. Nana, this has been great having you here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I love this podcast. As I mentioned, I listened to the Esther Ama one mm -hmm. and I really admire her and the work that she's doing. So and I've seen that you've had so many people that I admire um, yeah. on the show. So I'm really excited to be a guest. So thank you so much for inviting yes, me. Yes, yes. So before we go, what's next and what's new for, for you? So I am working on a novel. Um, it has been, um, you know, I, I'm excited to... Um, <laughs> uh, um, I'm, I'm working on a okay. novel <laughs> um, and I am also working on editing a collection as well. So... Just stay tuned. Okay. Stay okay. tuned. Okay. And a children's book. I have a children's picture Yay. book coming as well. Yay. Hooray for kids. I love it. I love it. Yay. Yay. Me Yay. too. So that's wonderful. So folks, this has been another episode. And actually, before I move into that, let me just ask. So any last words for our listeners today? 
Um, I no, I I I just want to say again, thank you for mm-hmm. having me, and I just love the premise of this show, like you know, just global, because I feel like we're all like the world has become so connected, yeah. so um, you don't even have to leave your your context to be exposed to like what's happening globally. Yes. And so I just love that you're celebrating thank that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So folks, this has been another episode of Global Citizens. You can find new episodes every Tuesday at www.globalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcast. Please, please, please subscribe, like, share, tell a friend, recommend a guest. And as always, bye for now. Thank you, Nana.